0: Okay, go ahead and flip to the book of James if you have your Bibles. James 1, we're going to look at 9 through 27 today. James 1, 9 through 27. James is right after Hebrews in the New Testament. We're calling this message Religion Undefiled, and I'm going to pray, and then we will just work our way through the passage, so keep your Bibles there, you'll want to follow along. James chapter 1, all right, let's pray. Father uh, and God, we ask that you would help us now as we open up your word, help us to understand it, grant us your spirit to carry it out in obedience. Um, We open our Bibles because we need our hearts to be open before you, so... Help us by the power of your spirit. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, let's look at verses nine through eleven. And I'm just going to kind of pick a, a few here and there and then offer some comments so you can kind of get the get the passage. Verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. His referencing obviously Isaiah 40. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So remember, rather than being double-minded, that was the first eight verses, the man of faith, that's the issue here, the man of faith who has endurance and maturity, he has as a consequence of those things, he has true perspective. And true, true perspective means this, the poor man... The man of humble circumstance, the poor man, has been exalted to the throne of Christ and he's been given a new status. So he should remember that. He should remember that. The rich man, in the very same gospel, in the very same gospel, he's been brought low by the reality that in Christ, his riches ultimately mean nothing. And the same gospel says the same thing to both. And so like grass... They fade away. So if the, if the rich man is going to glory in his wealth, he is quite literally playing with the God who is a consuming fire. His wealth, obviously it looks like a pretty flower, it's going to fade under the judgment of Christ. That's the scorching sun that he's referring to. It will be brought to nothing. So if your riches are brought to nothing, why glory in it? Why glory in it? James's point I think here is, is very clear. Rejoice that you've been brought low to a level where you are no longer enticed by the anxiety and deceitfulness of riches. That's what you should rejoice in. Rejoice in your circumstance. Rejoice in your humble circumstance because in Christ you have a high position. And the rich man needs to take heed too. Know that you you may have a beautiful amount of wealth. Ultimately, that stuff burns up. It means nothing, ultimately. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James is obviously uh, what we call like the New Testament book of Proverbs, and he kind of bounces between concepts. But here he's reaching his point from the very first few verses. We are called to endurance in trials, and when we endure, we obviously, we we get the crown of life. So it's a beatitude, right? This is a beatitude which reflects the beatitudes of his now-resurrected brother, Jesus, right? James, he reaches his point. We are called to, to, to persevere under, under trial, and when we do that, we are proving the veracity of our confession. Don't confess Christ if you're not willing to endure trial, right? That, that's, that's important. We prove the veracity of our confession, and then, of course, we receive the crown of life, now, it's well known that this crown, of, this crown of, of, uh, of life, if you will, was a reference to a wreath that was placed on the head of a victorious um, competitor, or a, uh, a victorious warrior who won the competition. That's what that crown would have been. Sort of like today we give the gold and silver and bronze medals. This is the crown that you receive. But beatitudes are meant to convey the, faith, convey the faithfulness of God. Look at verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. If you recall from last week, we have to make a distinguish we have to distinguish between trials and temptations. In the Greek language, it's the same word. But in English, we translate it differently because there's different nuances to the same Greek word. Trials are opportunities to navigate the difficulties of life by faith in Christ, knowing that God is at work ensuring your maturity. That was last week. A trial is there because you are the the sword on the anvil that God is shaping and molding and getting prepped for battle. So those are trials. But temptations, on the other hand, they are not things that come from without, but from within. Okay? Uh, God is holy. We know he cannot be tempted by sin. God is so above sin, he can't even be tempted by it. He, he looks at sin, and there is not a thought, an ounce of a thought in him that says that could be fun. He's so far in the realm of holiness that God is not tempted by sin at all. And James says he doesn't tempt people either. God doesn't tempt people or entice them into sin as if they were somehow joining the dark side. (laughs) They're joining in the rebellion. God doesn't do those things. He's holy, and because he's holy, he's beyond such trivialities. Now, on the contrary, temptation happens, James says, when we are enticed. That word enticed means like we're baited. We're on the hook. We've been baited. We are and trapped by our own lusts that's from within in fact god is so far removed from tempting us to evil that he is and can only be the sole cause of our regeneration you know how far god is away from temptation he's the only one that can cause that tempting heart of yours to be converted to be changed to be regenerate look at verses 15 and 16. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when, it is, when it's accomplished, that is, executed or fully performed, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, obviously, the birth analogy is, is intimated here. James, he puts a twist on it. Lust is a conception inside the heart's fickle fickle's desires, right? That's, that's the heart. We're fickle people with fickle desires which then it grows in gestation to the point of giving birth to a child. His name is Sin. That's the analogy. When Sin runs around in the house, free from all restraint, he gets into the cupboards and he breaks things. He takes your favorite china and smashes it on the floor. That's what Sin does. An unruly toddler who is allowed to just do whatever he or she is wants to do. So when, in other words, when Sin is allowed to run its course where is that course where does it end well death and destruction that's the path of sin so don't be deceived James says into thinking that God is somehow responsible for leading you into sin you know don't blame the devil you know the devil made me do it uh children don't blame your sister or your brother your sin is your sin now, they may have contributed to the circumstances of your sin by stealing your toy, but the way you responded and acted, I'm talking to adults here too, by the way, you, that's on you. That's your sin. You can't blame the devil. You can't blame your sister. Don't blame God. Blame your own lust, your own desires inside your heart. That's where they come from. So, the, the, in other words, the fruit belongs to you as does the root from whence it came. 17 and 18, every good thing, James says, given an ever, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the exercise of his will, he brought forth the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Listen, if it's good, it belongs to God. If it's good, it belongs to God. And the reason that it has his stamp on it is because God is good there is no goodness in creation that exists apart from God it's his I remember in, in college one of the first sermons I had to give it was like a 10-minute sermon and I preached from Philippians 4 whatever is good whatever is lovely whatever is true whatever you know whatever and in, in, in other words whatever is something that looks like God set your mind on that because it's from him it comes from his loving, light-giving hand. Again, James, he warns, don't be, don't be deceived. The lust is yours, but the gift of creation, the gift of a new creation we call regeneration, the, the good that's in the world, the word of truth planted in you, don't, don't make any mistake about where that came from. That belongs to God. The, the, word, the word of truth was given to bring about a new creation, and it starts with your very own heart. That's regeneration. God gives you a new birth, and the new birth is, of course, the foundation of our, of our theological experience. Look at verses 19 and 20. He continues, This you know, my beloved brethren. You, you know this, right? God, God put the word of truth in your heart. You didn't walk around to the store and decide, that's some word of truth, I'd like that. You had it implanted in you by the Spirit. You should know this, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. Does that not cut deep? For the anger of a man does not achieve the righteousness of God. From here on out, James is going to, to root what he's already said and what he's going to say in the word of truth, which is given through regeneration. There are two warnings against anger here. Um, he's going to talk about a warning to, to um, our penchant for wanting to not practice what we preach. And then he's going to conclude by self-deception. And, and he's focusing on these things. But when it comes to indwelling sin, how we interact with one another, those types of things, there's a reason James, James warns about being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And this is because of our uncanny ability to quickly spot out spot the evils of others while failing to see and spot and identify the evils of our, in ourselves. The reason you are slow to hear the reason that you are quick to anger, right? Quick to speak. A lot of those reasons have to do with the fact that we are quick to identify what's unrighteous in other people, and we are very slow at identifying what's right, unrighteous in us. When the word is implanted in you, it has to be given clean soil. That's the analogy. The soil is the conditions you allow in your heart. If you are a man of wrath and anger. James says there is no possible way, no possible way that you can achieve the righteousness or the justice of God. You can't do it. That's why when we're out at places like a George Mason University preaching Christ and exposing the evil of abortion, who's the one that's getting angry? (laughs) Who's the one that's not quick to hear? They're not quick to listen. They are very, very much slow to listen, but they are quick to speak and quick to get angry. There's a reason for that. You can't achieve God's justice with anger. See, anger is this bad soil, and all it does is produce rotten fruit in your life. Pure, unstained, unvarnished religion requires us to quietly slow it down. Look at verses 21 through 24. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. My goodness, if there was ever a condemning passage for the American church and her apathy. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror, for one, he has looked once he has looked at himself and gone away. He has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. James tells us to cultivate the soils of our, soil of our hearts, and the surest way to make that happen, make sure that that's accomplished, is by remembering who you are. Don't forget who you are. Every Christian has inconsistencies that have to be laid aside in order to embrace with meekness the word of God. Everyone. We're going to deal with your presuppositions. You better have dealt with yours before you got there. This man, however, has a major problem. The man sees himself in the mirror, but he goes about his life forgetting who he truly is without any sort of recollection of what sort of person he has just seen in the mirror. He's self deluded and self-deceived, for he cares not who he is, nor does he care who God says he is. We're going to come back to that because that's the crux of the passage. And then lastly, look at verses 25 through 27. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, This man will be blessed in what he does. For if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Rather self-explanatory, I would say. But he drives the point home. The law of liberty, which is basically James' way of describing the law of God, the word of truth, the message of the kingdom of God, that his brother, who was dead and was raised, preached, that same message, that's that's where we are to be anchored. That's where we are to be anchored. Not to be a wave tossed about like the double-minded man, faithless, feckless, all these fickle-minded people, fickle-hearted people. We're to be anchored. The law of God is the true mirror who tells us who we are. It tells us who we are. Without the word that's implanted, you're marked by double-mindedness, unfaithfulness. You're marked by anger. You're marked by blame-shifting. You're marked by an unbridled tongue. In all of your relationships, those are that's how you are marked. But with the law of liberty, one finds where he stands. It's either in Christ or it's in himself. And pouring out your life in service to others is what pure religion looks like. So be doers, James says. Now, to persuade you and and help you apply this, the great antithesis of history, These antithesis is this idea, children, of something that's in opposition. There's an antithesis. That great antithesis is between unrighteousness and righteousness, or what we can call justice and injustice. Or, more fittingly for our discussion, it's between slavery and liberty. I spent a lot of time in Zambia talking about this. The Bible has many ways of describing these competing ideas, sometimes using images, images or metaphors. Obviously, one of them that's popular is light versus darkness. The Gospel of John. John is obsessed with that imagery. But there's a, a, there's a way of describing this great antithesis in history. And it, all, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And there's this war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That's the antithesis. The the ethical, judicial aspect to life in God's world means that we need to be able to pay close attention to how we go about living, both in our own holiness, the holiness of the Christian, how you live your life, and, and how we do the mission of the church. How we go forth in a world that's plagued with darkness. So understanding antithesis, these opposing ideas... Is everything for our advancement of the gospel. You have to know this because when we understand antithesis, we understand things like injustice. And when we understand injustice, we understand idolatry. When we understand idolatry, we thus can actually preach the gospel. That's the connection. And yet here in the book of James, he describes this very same antithesis, but... Rather strikingly, he says it this way, there's a difference between religion which is defiled and a religion which is undefiled. That is the antithesis James picks up on. So religion, and that's a word that's obviously fallen on hard times lately. How many Christians do you know? I'm not religious. I'm in a relationship. I want to scream when I hear those types of things. Religion isn't neutral religion is either defiled or undefiled that's james's understanding of the word and because we're good presuppositionalists of course we want to know which kind of religion we're talking about so let's describe the defiled religion the defiled religion looks a lot about like doubt it looks like double-mindedness it's one foot in the door one foot out the door type of christianity it's the i i we're pro-life here at this church But we don't want to do anything about it. That's double mindedness, right? You might call it. Well, I like to say it's a noncommittal religion. It doesn't ask a whole lot from you. Uh, It's a faithless man whose desire is to split time with God equally. God has his time, of course, but he dare not encroach upon me time. Defiled religion is the man who blames God for all of his troubles. God led me into temptation. You know the old adage, the woman you gave me did this. <laughs> people who have dead faith have rotten relationships. Everything is about them. Everything. They only want to talk about themselves. They are selfishly motivated in all of their relationships with people, and that's because they tend to be quick to speak, slow to listen, which isn't what the gospel teaches us. People who practice a defiled religion blame everyone. Blame God. Blame the devil. Blame their environment. Blame others. And they never acknowledge their own lust. They never do it. They never acknowledge their own false desires. Oh, look at us, church. We butcher children and pump poison into their blood. Oh, things are just so bad, aren't they? Well, you can do something about it. No, you can't. Not really. Not really. That's defiled religion. They don't acknowledge the good gifts of God, and and they certainly don't believe that Jesus Christ is King and that He's putting His enemies under His feet. They believe quite readily on that their hand and their might got them this stuff. You probably saw this, Ron, but over by GMU. There's this huge, brand new church building that's being constructed right next to the campus, and uh, we're talking probably millions were spent on that building. Uh, right off of um, Braddock. Braddock, yeah. I just, we just passed it. Yes, I it you saw it, it. and going, oh, um, and 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 boy, boy, could there have been a Christian school? Boy, could there, we've got our priorities wrong? We've got our priorities wrong. We have a defiled religion which believes that our hand and our might got this." Which is the very thing Moses said, God told Moses not to do with Israel. So James obviously is likened to the book of Proverbs and rightfully so, he issues Proverbs because Proverbs are the clearest indication of the antithesis. If you read the book of Proverbs, you are reading the antithesis right there. The fool does this, what does the wise person do? That's all the Proverbs is and James is the same way. Fools do this. Faithful people do that. Fools do this. They exercise these things. They they commit themselves to these trivialities. But the wise person is disciplined. He does this, this, and this. And there's, of course, the most definitive statement on what it means to have a defiled religion. He says anger. Things like anger. Hearer of the word only. Looks in the mirror. Walks away. Forgets. He forgets who he is and and that he's a person made in the image of God. He doesn't bridle his tongue. He talks the talk, right? And he talks some more. But there's no walking. And this person, she doesn't care about the widow and the orphan. He doesn't care about the widow and the orphan. This person, in short, is stained by the world. Okay, but what does religion undefiled look like? That's the defiled religion James focuses on. What does undefiled religion look like? Well, it's the opposite. Right? That's, that's antithesis. It's the very opposite. It looks like a single-minded devotion to Christ and the law of liberty. Single-minded devotion. And by the way, single-minded devotion doesn't mean ignoring injustice, ignoring your spouse, ignoring your children, ignoring our responsibility and task that God has put before us. This is a fully committed religion. It's a comprehensive faith for every aspect of life and living. It's the type of religion where man owns his sins instead of blame shifting. It's the pouring out of oneself in service to others. This person is self-aware. And because this person is self-aware, he or she is quick to listen to someone. Quick to listen, slow to speak to them. Not having to impress others by making sure that he's heard at every turn but being slow to speak. He is not an angry man marked by impatience or ingratitude or stubbornness. He quite literally watches his mouth, watches what he says, bridling his tongue at all turns. James is going to go into that whole thing about the tongue very soon in the next chapter. This person cares about the widow and the orphan because the world has written them off. He keeps himself unstained by the world, In other words, holiness at all cost. Holiness at all cost, we might say. Pure and undefiled religion, properly understood, stems from the word of faith that's being implanted in the soul, nurtured by the Holy Spirit through trial and temptation, and brought to fruition in our pursuit of holiness, righteousness, and justice. That's pure religion. James is... Not, nor is he ever arguing for, a works-based religion. We'll get into that because there's, you know, Paul says we're justified by faith alone, and James says we're justified by our works, and people struggle with that. But there's nuance to it. There's meaning. There's perfect. They're saying the same thing. They're, they're just looking at the opposite side of the same coin. There's a reason for it. James is arguing for a religion that's brought to life. It's not dead. But there are several components I think we need to take very, very seriously as we look at a passage like this. The heart of James's admonition stems from this idea of self-evaluation, and it's exemplified in the use of the mirror analogy. So what is he saying in the, uh, the whole mirror discussion? Well... It's been well-established in archaeology and history that back in Bible times, mirrors were not as readily available as they are today. How many mirrors do you see in your your day-to-day life? I mean, you go in the car, you have mirrors. (laughs) They're everywhere. But back then, of course, it was easy to go several days, if not weeks, never really seeing your own face. So, you know, grooming was a problem. (laughs) You could look in the mirror if you had one, um, but, if you, uh, but it probably was obscured to some degree. We hadn't perfected the mirror. It took a while because post-millennialism. But you could look in, the calm, in a calm body of water, and you might see your reflection a little bit. Perhaps a stream or something. The Sea of Galilee, you could, you could maybe see, catch a glimpse. Obviously not very detailed. Either way, it wasn't unheard of for you to go a long while without seeing your own face. Now, the argument that James is making is rooted in these concepts of antithesis, and it's revealed in verses 22 and 23. And, and you can see those here. Hearers of the word only, right? That's, the un, that's defiled religion. You hear the word, and that's it. And then the opposite, what is religion undefiled? It's hearers and doers of the word. So in James's mind, there's no like dividing this up. There's one way to truth and that is hearing and doing the word. There isn't the the hearing only is not an option. Hearing only sends you to hell. That's, that's the argument. So the person who hears the word of truth, but he doesn't cultivate the soil of holiness in his heart, one, he doesn't take it to heart, he doesn't care, he's like someone who looks in the face, looks at his face in the mirror, and he walks away, and look at what James says. What does he do in verse 24? He forgets what kind of person he was. Not if he was bearded up and shaved, he forgot what his facial hair look like no he forgets the kind of person he was he is wrapped up in himself his mirror means nothing because he's in his own mirror instead of the law of liberty being the mirror that tells us who we are and who others are he hears the word he walks away from the word and he carries on with his life on his own terms and conditions James's brother Jesus likened it to pointing out the speck in your brother's eye, ignoring the two-by-four log sticking out of your own eye. There's a lack of a mirror, the correct mirror. We judge people self-righteously instead of looking at our own self. Now, the Greek language, there are various tenses in Greek, and it gets rather complicated sometimes, um, but it helps understand what we're speaking about. Um, Verbs in Greek, specifically, can be something that happens once and never again. Or it can be something that happened one time, but it keeps going. It's an ongoing action. It's a mess. But <laughs> this man to, to communicate what the language is saying, this man looks once quick. Look, he looks once he goes away quickly. That's the emphasis in the, in the verb language. And he immediately forgets who he was. This man has no time for self evaluation, none. He's, he does everything very quickly. He's not a careful, diligent man. He is a hurried man. He's a busied man, a man unconcerned with truth, perhaps because he is proud, perhaps because he's preoccupied with the world. He just may not have time for various reasons. He looks in the mirror, either arrogantly impressed with himself, man, I look good. He may do that. He's looking to himself to be his own law, and of course he leaves, and guess what? He's unchanged. He's unchanged. When we look intently, James says, at the perfect law, the law of liberty, the mature law, the law that tells us who God is and who we are, We realize rather quickly where we stand. We truly see God and we truly see ourselves. This person is not a forgetful man. He is a blessed man, a grateful man, a doing man who remembers what he sees in the mirror of God's law because after all, how could he forget the grace of God? How could he forget the beauty of Christ and his gospel? How could he forget the goodness and purity and holiness of God's law? when he's staring at it and seeing it for what it really is and notice the emphasis on the word liberty god's law quite literally restricts our freedom in some ways while opening up freedom in other ways it is liberty because it it's liberty because it prevents us from traveling down the road to self-destruction that's freedom we want uh I just think of some of these students we've talked to at GMU, you know, they they, they, they like the idea of freedom and liberty, but freedom and liberty means um, murdering children. <laughs> freedom and liberty to them means us not going there and confronting and waking them up. That's the freedom they want. But the freedom that we want is preventing people from going down the road of self destruction. So because of the gospel, quite literally the law the law because it becomes a means for us. It's a means of liberty for us and our neighbor, not a means of slavery. In Christ, we are free not to pursue our own law or our own self determined will. Rather, we are freed from the condemnation of the law of sin and death in order to truly live, in order to truly care for those around us. That's why it's liberty. When we become doers of the word, established by Christ's gospel, and we're brought into a relationship with the law of liberty, we are an effectual doer. I love that phrase, an effectual doer. Our actions have consequences. And when our actions are fueled by a true reflection of the law of of liberty, those actions positively affect the world around us. This is why religion undefiled works the way it does. There is a way to be falsely religious and a way to be truly religious. And the only way to be truly religious is through that mirror. That mirror, that's the law of liberty. The the false version, James says, is worthless. It's empty. That's what the word means. It's empty. It means nothing. It's completely and entirely devoid of any significance, any benefit the garbage that is spewed to us. Ah, oh, your God is nothing. I, there is no God. <laughs> Just thinking, like, I'm free to be who I am. Live your truth, it says in DC on some of the signs. It's, it's not freedom. It's worthless. It's empty. It's incoherent. It means nothing. It's vain. There's no significance. The man who embraces a defiled religion, which is based solely on hearing the word instead of doing the word, contributes nothing to the kingdom of God. And how many pew warmers do we have in the church that do the same thing? Sorry, pew is outdated, the comfy new chairs. How many ostensible Christians are hearers only? I would I would say the majority. I would. How many Bible studies and prayer meetings are nothing but toxic places to gossip and distract from the mission? How many pastors are preaching a religion that they don't even want to believe or hear to? Which is why they don't say hard things. How many antinomian Christians do we have in our churches? The majority. The majority have no use for God's law. No use. I mean, I can't tell you the exact answer how many, but the fact that the world around us continues to be an infant blood stain on our nation is evidence that we have done some things wrong. We're not doing things right. And I would argue by and large that the prevailing religion, the prevailing religion is one of hearing only. It's interesting that James uses orphans and widows here, isn't it? Why does he say that? You know, I mean, of all the problems that James would have faced in first century Palestine, all the things, his, his apostle friends being murdered at the hands of lawless uh, Roman pagans and overly, un, overly defiled, we can say, religious leaders, all the problems in this tumultuous times, and this is what he chooses to say. Why would he say this? I'll tell you this, the more I preach, the less time I spend in commentaries... <laughs> And that's because I think largely they're unhelpful when it comes to practical Christianity. Sometimes they're helpful. A lot of times they're not. I just don't spend a lot of time. So this week I, last week I was writing this and I thought I'm going to go and look at some things and see if anyone has some profound insight that me, dummy me, I don't know. Why would James say this? So I looked at several (laughs) and I found nothing. There's no explanation. Now, I guess that just means they're all as dumb as me. I don't know. (laughs) Why did James use this? Now, I don't know if I have the complete answer for you, so you're going to be on the edge of your seat for a moment, but I will try to answer it, and this is my theory. Theory only. God's law in the Old Testament clearly indicates that caring for orphans and widows is an important function for the people of God. It's all over the Old Testament. All right, and if you, I'll give you some verses in a second. If you want to write them down, you can look them up. But I think the reason James uses this example is because the prominence of that theme in the Old Testament and the fact that his brother, who was dead and now raised, actually did that. I think it made a mark on James. I think watching his brother teach, his brother who is fully God, teach, and not just teach, but do. Serve those who are downcast. Serve those who are out, ostracized. I think James, after the resurrection, there was kind of that light bulb flipped on moment where he's like, "Aha! Now I get it. Now I get it." God most assuredly took special interest in defending the fatherless, defending the widow. Deuteronomy 10:18 is one example. Um, Psalm 68.5, Psalm 146.9, uh, Proverbs 15.25. In fact, God was so passionate about the subject that he demanded that leaders defend them. Psalm 82.3. If you want them later, I'll give them to you. But Isaiah 123, Jeremiah 5.28. He was so passionate about the topic that he demanded leaders defend them and not exploit them. Exodus 22. Deuteronomy 24, 17, Psalm 94, 6. I was busy this week. Isaiah 10, 2, Jeremiah 7, 6, Zechariah 7:10, just to name a few. God took this issue so seriously that he threatened covenant sanctions against Israel and her leaders for failing to do this. And I think that how you view widows, how you view orphans, how you view the least of these is actually the heart of what your religion looks like. Why would James bring this up here? Because the impulse of the law of liberty is other focused The man walked away, forgot who he was. You're supposed to walk right up to the law of liberty, stare at it, deal with it, and walk away a changed man, a changed woman, a changed child. That's what holiness is. And when we truly grasp the gospel, when we truly grasp the law of God, we are freed in order to give ourselves to those who cannot defend themselves. We go to the hard places to defend victims of abuse, victims of neglect or injustice. We serve and provide for those who cannot do so In short, religion undefiled is gospel-loving, law-saturation that looks a whole lot like serving and comforting and encouraging the destitute, downtrodden, and broken. That, that's the heart of it. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that your spirit would bring conviction to us. You have given us your spirit as a deposit, as a guide, and he is, in fact, the one who has inspired these holy scriptures. So would would you, Father, send your spirit in a way that he would um, convict us, that he would teach us, that he would lead us, lead us further into the path of holiness, further down the road of obedience. We want to be doers, Father, not hearers only. We want a religion that is not undefiled, not stained, not defiled and not stained by the world, but one that is truly undefiled, one that is pure. So God, would you wake us up? Would you wake our community up? Would you wake the, st- the state of Virginia up? Wake this nation up, God? And jar the world with your holiness. We ask and pray this in the name of Christ, our King, who sits in throne glorified today. His name is Jesus. Amen.